Welcome to the Hello Foundation's 15-minute podcast, The Strategic Cohort, showcasing an educational administrators answering five questions related to their current position. We talk with educational leaders across settings and across states. Our objective is to share thoughts and ideas between professionals at a time when leaders can often feel isolated. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Strategic Cohort. I'm very fortunate today to be here with uh, Dallas Myers in Fremont School. Is it Fremont School District? Fremont County School District number 25. Excellent. And that is in Wyoming. It is. And uh, Dallas, will you share with us your current title and what your responsibilities are there? My current title is I'm the Director of Special Services Student Services. Um, our district is uh, in central Wyoming. We are district of K-12 district, as some Wyoming districts are very rural. Um, in size, we're in the largest cohort for special education, special services, meaning we have about 2,500, 2,600 students in our district. We have about 12.8% of our students on an IEP in special education, which is roughly 350 students. Um, my, my duties and responsibilities um, revolve around both curriculum instruction, assessment, and learning, as well as um, IEP compliance, all the related and special services to make sure that all the students on an IEP in our district are receiving services. I oversee seven case managers. Um, there's one in special services that works specifically without a district student. We have three K-2 buildings, um, a 3-5 building, a middle school, and a high school. And each of the buildings have their own case manager. And we try to keep all the case managers around 60 students per caseload. Uh, so my job is to oversee those case managers and, and scheduling and, and working with parents and students and helping students receive all those services. We, um, we currently have um, six speech-language pathologists. We have one-and-a-half um, occupational therapists. We have a full-time physical therapist. We have a doctor in that position. We have a full-time school psychologist, and we are looking to hire an additional full-time school psychologist. Hopefully, we start interviewing next month. Uh, and and that, so that's, that's kind of the, the, the depth and the breadth, I guess, we, yeah. we further, but that's kind of the baseline. You're, you're juggling a lot. That yeah. I am impressed with all that you're able to rattle off in terms of exactly where your district is and uh, 12.8 percentage as far as special ed. Is that high compared to where it's been in the past or? Um, 12.8 is actually low. We were up around 17 about three, four years ago. Wow. Um, and it seems as the nation and, and maybe the state of Wyoming gave the option for using um, response to intervention RTI methods to as a uh, additional means for students with the LD disability to qualify for special education, that a lot of numbers shot up. We, we chose to use our building intervention team as we've used for years to try the least restrictive intervention prior to a referral for a special ed evaluation. So our numbers have stayed a little bit lower as we've increased the quality of interventions that we're using in the general ed classroom. Um, we've got a bigger response um, from students' academic performance using that method than some of the districts have used using the RTI method. 
because um, at the end of the day, we still need to assess students to find out if they what their discrepancy is and what their skill deficits are. Not not just a uh, qualification for special ed, but a uh, a diagnostic assessment to really find out what their needs are. And we're working hard on that area. Well, that's what should happen. I actually did think that was a lower number. I'm in a school district right now on the school board where we're at 14 percent, and it's a struggle. You know, we really want to see those numbers come down. But I think you're absolutely right. That quality intervention at the general education level versus a wait and fail model and then refer them to special ed is not the solution. Um, Well, the wait and fail model is not the solution. Intervening Mm -hmm. in the classroom is. Well, that's. And we we are. We have. We're a Title I district. So we have a number of um, free and reduced Mm -hmm. students in our school district. Actually, there's. There's eight school districts and a BIA school within our county and and in the state as well. I think we're the lowest um, on the poverty scale for demographics than any other district in the state of Wyoming um, and definitely in, in the county. Within our county, there's three school districts that are on part of a Wind River Indian Reservation. There's a Fort Washakie, which has a K-12 district mm-hmm. um, Fremont 38 which has a k-12 district and that's Arapaho school mm-hmm. and then there's Wyoming Indian um, school district which is Fremont 14 and they're all predominantly 100% Native Americans and even with that um, we still average around 22% Native American population and if we were to take all the Caucasian Hispanics out of our school district we would be the largest probably Native American high school in the United States, just based upon the number of students, Native American students attend our school. So we have some unique challenges and obstacles um, when it comes to education and special education. And we're working really hard with the LD teachers this year and next year to help them develop quick and easy means to assess and address student learning deficits. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. It is a unique situation that you're in. Um, what's, is that the greatest challenge that you have that no one sort of shares your experience? I, I don't think it's necessarily the um, ethnicity demographics. I think the greatest challenge that we have is the poverty demographics. Mm. And because even outside of ethnicity, it seems that Poverty affects all learners very similar, regardless of ethnicity. And those problems seem to be the greatest obstacle when it comes to helping students and families progress um, academically through the education system. Do you have a success that you have experienced that you're pleased with that you would love to see happen in other places? I think the success that we have is um, in, in recently we we spent the last two years Um, working on inclusive education from a a least restrictive environment to a more general education environment. And I, and I think that, and and what we really work off of, and I I hate to throw names out there, but Mike Schmoker really hits home. He, He has a saying that says, when small, when often, and when early. So I think one of the things that in, in, in my philosophy and trying to help students and families and, and, and ultimately students be successful is we started with small pilot programs with inclusion. And this year we've rolled them out full time. So we had pilot programs for a year. And some of the results that we've seen, for instance, um, in an eighth grade math class, we had kids that were in a, a learning resource, a separate, separate classroom for math in the uh, sixth and seventh grade. And the average MAP score for students in that time 
frame is used upon the Roche index, the RIT scores in math. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I, I know you know about those. And the average growth in math for those students was 2.6. And so our big goal was to close that achievement gap. While those students were in the learning resource room, um, they were averaging 3.9 RIT um, points in growth per year. Um, in that pilot program, when we put them in in eighth grade, it was pretty exciting because their RIT scores jumped from 3.9 to 9 in oh one Oh, my gosh. And so we have evidence that the inclusive process with the math classroom is working. Um, we've spent two years investing in it. The first year is a pilot program. And this year, um, we've rolled it out to other teachers. In the summer, we plan to support that by using um, our own staff that are working very hard and having success to provide professional development to the rest of the teachers in the district that choose to use this as a method to, uh, to better teach students with special needs. Oh, that is a great, so we're great very success. Yes, congratulations. That's a huge win for kids and your staff. It's got to be reassuring to them. They're on the right track. Well, and granted, it's on a small scale. And but we definitely want to use fidelity and and, um, and fidelity with inclusion means what's best for the student. Right. And obviously that relationship. And we wanted to find the best practice um, and the best means. And now we've rolled it out this year. So it'll be exciting to see what it's like that we've um, we've used it district wide with with a lot more than just a, a few teachers in, in each building. And, and see what the success is going to be. In addition to that, we've also started working on um, progress monitoring assessments. We've used, uh, and I won't, I won't name any, we've used a couple different ones, and we've used one for the last couple of years, but we found it to be lacking. So we, we've looked for something that is more diagnostic in its nature. Right, right. And that we can use alongside our MAP scores because we continue to use those to, to determine um, benchmarks in, in both the fall, winter, and the spring. That's great. Boy, that's great. Versus waiting an entire year. Yes. I, yeah, that's fantastic. And you had mentioned Schmoker earlier, and I'm a big fan of that work. So I think, uh, you know, hooray. Thanks for fighting the good fight. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, yeah. Ad, what advice would you share with a new school administrator just coming, you know, into leadership, a leadership role? I came from a career technical education background. That's where I spent my time in the classroom and working with at-risk students in behavior environments. And then I, I got into a building administrative position for five years in, in a high school level. And when I went to special education as the director of special education five years ago, the biggest epiphany that I had is when I went to the first special ed conference, there were 27 attorneys, attorneys presenting. And that was the, the sum total <laughs> of what the conference was about was all about compliance. And while IDEA and FAPE and all those things are very important, as a special ed director, it that balance between compliance and learning. And it's very easy to get sucked into making sure that all the, the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. But at the end of the day, are, are your students um, achieving progress academically? Because that's why we're all here. And do they have to be compliant? Yes. And so we've really worked hard to turn the IEP into a, a lesson plan, a teaching document versus a compliance document. And that paradigm shift for special educators is very difficult yeah. in helping the IEP revolve, evolve from a compliance document. And, and, I'd say, and I'd say just that balance, you know, between being a manager and being an instructional leader. Um, every, somebody has to make sure the lights and the heat's on. And it, but at the end of the day, it's about 
teaching and learning and you have to keep that as your focus. Oh, you know, Dallas, you're my new hero because I totally think that's dead on accurate. I marvel when I go to special ed conferences, how much it's on compliance and people get very freaked out and we can be sued. And I have often made the argument that if you keep parents in the loop as to what you're doing and why, and how it's in the best interests of their students in terms of instruction, yes, that really you're going to all, you're all on the same path moving forward. Once we start bickering over whether or not, you know, an IEP was in a certain number of days, we really lost the war already. I mean, we're not on the same page. <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> and, and a lot of times it's really great conversations that you get into. And, and I don't know, in Wyoming, we have a, a, a lot of conversations about driving a Chevy Ford or a Dodge. And I think, I think everybody in education wants the same ends. And I think we get, we get bogged down in the discussion about the means. And I think through conversations and relationships with those people, those stakeholders, parents and students, uh, that we can all arrive at the same conclusion. However, it, it takes some time and it takes some, some crucial conversations and just being open and honest with each other. And I think at the end of the day, starting from that common ground, we want what's best for students all the way around. And then how do we achieve that? I think we just got to keep coming back to that common ground, what's best for them. So I appreciate you being aware of that. Oh yeah. No, it's, it's so critical. It's so critical. And I sometimes feel like I definitely know when I chat with administrators where, you know, their job is really management and compliance. And in the end, that's missing the boat for kids because so many resources as school funding was cut. It's not, unfortunately, we don't necessarily have instructional leaders that are separate helping these teachers. And so you really have to be that as well. So well, with all that said, in your opinion, what trends are currently going to impact education in the future? You know, accountability is huge. Yeah. And here in Wyoming, um, each state has the flexibility to create their own accountability plan and then send it to the feds to get approved. And and I think accountability is really, really big. Um, I, I also think that Congress um, stalling on the reauthorization of ESEA in, in whatever form it'll come out will only have a negative impact. And I, and I, and I wish that in some instances that uh, we would focus on the whole student. I never got into education to teach a content. I never got into teach math or science or any of the career tech things that I taught. I got, I, I want to, I, I got into education to teach kids and work with people. Right. And I think that, I think that holistic approach that we're teaching people, we're not teaching math, we're not teaching reading, we're not teaching right. We need to come back to that focus on that. And hopefully that pendulum doesn't shift too far that way that we stay somewhere in the middle. But those things like that and those conversations with congressmen and legislatures really need to happen. That uh, Education is teaching people it's not a math, reading, and writing score. And we forget about that sometimes. Oh. That and we, so we have a tendency to focus on what's being measured and what's being put in the paper. I mean, it's human nature. So, yeah. But in reality, but in reality, we really want good citizenship we and do. we want good neighbors and we want good, strong families. And all of those, you, those don't come from a strong math score. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite things to do, Sharon, is I like to ask people what they, um, what they studied. And I was in, 10th grade in 1980. So I said, I, you know, what did you study your sophomore year of biology on whatever the date is, January 29th. 
January 30th. Can you remember what you did on that day? No, absolutely not. But they remember the people, they remember the class, they remember the teacher, and they remember the experience. And so while we while we drive to educate students, it's that holistic um, building experience of young people that we need to focus on and not, not isolate incidents or isolated content or curriculum. I believe, you know, have you ever read the book, um, um, The World is Flat? Yes. Yes. And how right brain people will rule the world. Have you read that one? Yes. Yes. Well, I don't, I haven't read that, but I'm aware of it. Well, and, and I think that fine arts degrees and masters, you know, we need people that can think outside the box. And I, I have a daughter, I'm very left brain, very concrete, sequential. And I have a daughter that's completely opposite. And, and it was hard for her in, in the school system because you, we, we want to, you know, we have this industrial model of education. We, in one school I worked at when I was a teacher, it drove me so wild that we rang bells to move. You know, it was Pavlov's law. Yeah. We rang a bell. That that was a bell to indicate that you're hungry. We rang another bell, and that was an indicator you had to quit eating. And so I had all the bells taken away in the schools, and I really fought hard. because I said, you know what? We're in high school. We can read a clock. We don't need to be governed by a bell. And it's that industrial model that needs to change because these students coming up right now need to have the capability to solve problems that we're not even aware of and think on the fly. And given given that lack of creativity and that rigid line of, of instruction and education, yeah, there's a place for that self-discipline. But at the end of the day, they need to be creative thinkers. And, and I honestly do believe that right brain people will rule the world at some point. And a master's in a fine arts degree is not such a bad thing in, in 2020, I don't think. Oh, I completely agree. I was saying to a group of parents just recently and teachers on a tech committee that we have uh, that really our third graders, like the statistic is something like 60 to 70 percent of them are preparing for jobs that do not even exist at this point. And so we do not know what is going to happen. My own daughter, who's very scientifically oriented, is really interested in theater and the arts. And I tell her, ironically, that's probably what's going to serve her better because you need to be able to be a problem solver and look at things differently as problems emerge in the sciences. So yeah. it's I'm, I'm on board with you, Dallas. We can just chat all night, but... <laughs> Yeah, I know. <laughs> Last question I just wanted to ask, how are students different today than when you went to school? I think it's the, the, the external pressures that we put on students. I, I don't think that humans in the in the big scheme of the picture have changed remarkably in the last couple hundred years. I think we still have the, the same basic motivations. I think that they, they deal with um, – the different pressures and stuff that society puts on them. I, I'm very envious. I, I, I like technology. Um, I think it's an unbelievable tool that, that we have available. I think that their, um, their freedom to move without environments is a lot easier for them than it was for me and, and for, for the students that are my age does that make sense? Yes, it does. And I think it's, I can't even imagine what my great grandkids are going to experience. So it's going to be an interesting, interesting world. So I thank you so much for your time, Dallas. I know it's very limited, so, but this is great. And I think it's going to help a lot of other people. Many thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Strategic Cohort. We thank all of our administrator partners for practicing quality and putting kids first. We are always seeking administrators interested in answering our five questions for this podcast. If you would like to be a part of the strategic cohort, please contact us at 
sharon.soliday at thehellofoundation.com. We always provide participating administrators a copy of the recording to share on their own LinkedIn profile.